The following has been brought to you by SJP World Media. Hello and welcome to the Doctor Who pod with Cy and Dan. I am Cy and joining me as always is my partner in time, Mr. Dan Griffin. How are you, my friend? I'm doing very well, mate. Very well. Full of energy, full of life. Um, and uh, it's our recording. It's, uh, uh, I've been having a few issues with migraines and whatnot. And uh, thank you very much for the uh, for the shout out on Chain Wrestling. That was very nice. I appreciated that. I don't think I mentioned. But yeah, oh, no, I'm, you're, uh, you're I'm very welcome. You're very welcome. I'm back and I'm raring to go, and we have got a lot to discuss this week. We have, we have. Uh, we are looking at today the 1969 Patrick Triton story, War Games, which is 10 parts long. And I mean, it's safe to say, without giving away whether we liked it or not, it's safe to say it's a bit of a slog, isn't it? Two things. Mm-hmm. I'll just get the first one. I'll just get out of the way right now. <laughs> Sixty-nine. Um, <laughs> secondly, what kind of knob picks a ten-parter? Well, Dalek's master plan next season, mate. You want to hope? I, <laughs> you, want to, <laughs> you want to hope I don't get Hartnell next season? <laughs> oh, dear God. Oh dear God. But yeah, we're, we're looking at war games. I don't know. I don't know. Um, I happened to mention this to uh, to our friend AB, who uh, was doing a Twitch stream earlier today and is actually our guest for next week, spoiler alert. Um, yes. And and they said that we are fucking mental. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> trying, to, trying to do this all in one go. So it's going to be one of those episodes where, just by necessity, we have to um, just sort of give our general thoughts and discussions because 10 parts is, is far too much to dissect. Um as I alluded to off uh, off air, I've been a busy little beaver. Um, I've actually, for the first time ever, constructed a companion document to my notes, just breaking down episode by episode who gets captured by who and who escaped from where throughout the entire serial, because that's what a lot of this is. Yes, that is that is very true. It seems I, I've got my notes in front of me here. Let me just have a quick scan down because there's one particular episode that I made a note. It might have been part four, maybe, or part five, where it was literally just captured, escaped, captured, escaped, captured, escaped, captured again, and that was the cliffhanger. Uh, that would be episode five and episode seven. Okay, right. In yes. fairness, um, it averages across the first seven episodes. It averages around about three uh, captures and escapes per per episode. So, what are we talking here? Um, a, a capture, escape, capture per episode, roughly. 
No, a capture or escape. So I've, 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 oh, I've yeah, yeah, I get it. Escape is two separate things. So, for example, episode one, uh, when the Doctor, Jamie, and Zoe arrive in 1917 in, uh, in World War One, they almost immediately get captured by the Germans. Yes, gas mask wearing Germans. I bet you love that. Oh, bastards! Um, <laughs> they, they are yes. <laughs> those those Germans in World War One. Oh, they were scumps. <laughs> and it was all be- no. I won't go down that route. <laughs> I was going to say it was all because of the gas mask. Um, but anyway, no, no. <laughs> yeah, a bit more, bit more to it than that. Um, oh, the Germans then get carjacked by the Brits. It's a custody of the Doctor Jamie and Zoe changes. Or you know, within the first. Five minutes. Mm-hmm. And then the Doctor, Jamie and Zoe get separated with the Doctor sentenced to the firing squad and Jamie and Zoe essentially being put to work as part of various regiments or, or what have you. Yeah. And that's basically the first episode and we've got a creepy guy with with hypno-glasses. Yeah. I mean, I, I suppose if we're sort of uh, having a general overlook of the whole thing, as opposed to breaking it down, we should sort of briefly run through the rough gist of what's going on. The TARDIS, as you said, Dan, has arrived in what seems like World War One. There's effectively these war zones they're referred to as, isn't it? Which are across a, a, a certain place and they're being controlled by the war chief. Uh, and they are armies from the past plucked from from their own time brought into these war zones to battle and the, the we find out very late on to be fair i think it's like episode 7 or 8 or something like that quite a way in we actually find out what the 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 master plan is don't we the the, the evil mm. plot and that is to put all these uh, famous armies famous you know soldiers and so on up against each other and what's left after they've battled it all through is going to form effectively some kind of super army, which they're then going to use to force, sort of. yeah, to force peace on the rest of the universe sort in a way. Of, yeah, the the idea is that humans are the ultimate killing machine, basically the ultimate vehicle of war, because we've been systematically murdering each other for half a million years. Yes. And they're studying various points of human history to engineer and identify the perfect uh, the perfect fighting force to take over the galaxy and establish whatever race of aliens these humanoid things with ridiculous glasses are to essentially be the galactic rulers and rule with an iron fist. And, and we're back to fascists, uh, basically. Yes, we are. We're back to sort of space Nazis, um, but yeah, that's that's the that's the other thing, and they've got a very strange little hierarchy going on because you've got the war chief, the security chief, and the war lord. Yeah, he's the big big boss, isn't he? Because he's got the biggest glasses, and therefore the, it looks like he has the biggest eyes. Um, <laughs> it's yeah, it's. There's a there's a fair bit of wee woo beep boop with the whole mind processing machines and things like that, which is sort of very classic Doctor Who and and like I said, you know the hypno uh, the hypno glasses of of a monocle as it comes in for one of the characters. Mm. That's all well and good, but it's um, just overall it's it's a bit of a chew. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, I'll be honest. You know, spoiler alert. I I quite enjoyed this. You know, I thought this was I thought this was good. I didn't mind it the first time I watched it. Okay. 
So this is one of the very rare instances of me having seen something before uh, for Classic Who, because I went out of my way to watch this in my own time a little while back because I wanted to see the regeneration scene and see how it was handled, because I, I was curious. You know, I knew it wasn't going to be all flashy golden lights spraying out the limbs and, and all of that, but I just wanted to see what it was like and then what sort of led up to it. Um, watched it over a few days, enjoyed watching it, thought eh, a bit slow but you know it's it's all right and then watching it back for this knowing we'd have to talk about it within about two hours i was thinking oh bollocks <laughs> why why did i insist on making side do this when i'm basically shooting myself in the foot yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I think that the length of this is is obviously the big stumbling block i think and it's going to be a big stumbling block for shall we say, uh, people who are new to Doctor Who, who, who yes. have just watched, especially maybe younger people who who have grown up watching just new Who, as an example. And the pacing of it, I don't think it ever really thoroughly drags. I don't think there's any moments that are proper dragging, but there's some that get close. And the fact yeah. that it is a lot, a lot of the same sort of thing, captured, escaped, recaptured, can cause that sort of almost dragging feeling Dan it can I mean the, the one thing going for it in that regard is that there is some variety in who's captured by who and who has to do the saving and, and, and bits and pieces like that and it's always they're always captured with a clear objective you know they're not just trying to escape for escaping sake and then figuring it out afterwards mm-hmm. you know they're always we've got to get in, you know, the initial capture. Okay, we've got to get back to the TARDIS. Then as it goes on to find out, you know, then the next capture, okay, we've got to go get Carstairs and Lady Jennifer. Uh, Lady Jennifer. And, it, and it, you know, with every capture and every escape, it, it builds and, and fits in somehow, but it can feel a little bit cyclical at certain points, like it's just spinning its wheels. Mm. It's, it's, it's always inching towards a point. But when I say, in fact, spinning wheels is, is, is actually quite a metaphor. It's like trying to drive on ice and you're putting your foot down and the wheels are spinning, but you're only inching towards your destination. Mm. Um, that's that's how it felt a little bit on the second watch. On the first watch, I'm, I'm more in your sort of camp. I actually, you know, I thought it was pretty good. And, you know, I, I don't mind a slow burner. Um, it just proves that you can watch something um, you know, more than once, but too close together. <laughs> I think, yeah, and I okay. think that's good. I think, to be fair, I'm gonna have to preface everything I say about this episode. Um, is is sort of based on that. Uh, that I've watched it twice, very close together, and by the time you're done with it, it's you know 250 minutes. That's you know four hours. Mm-hmm. Wait, have I got that right? A bit more than that, six, isn't it? Six times four. Yeah, it's just over four hours. Um, which you know, long time, long time to do anything. You could watch, you could watch the Schneider cut of Justice League in that time if you were so inclined. Um, I'm only saying that just for the look of confusion on Sai's face. I've seen that. <laughs> what? I've seen that. Fuck off. It was four hours and is it fifteen or seventeen minutes long, something like that? Oh, I can't remember exactly. Yeah, Sharon wanted to watch it, so I sat down one evening and watched it with her. Yeah, I've seen that. Shit, me, that is long. my my flabber has been gasted (laughs) (laughs) oh no i have i've seen that yeah uh i don't don't, myself now (laughs) (laughs) what i don't mind about the 
the length of this story is that it does lead into certain aspects that I suppose we don't get any more with Doctor Who being, you know, one-off episodes or two-parters and so on in New Who. And when we go into more recent times of classic Who, the story lengths are shrunk down to as little as two episodes sometimes in the 80s. Now, for example, in episode one here, we know that these uh, the bad guys here, General Smythe is the first one we come across and so on, they are obviously not of this land, not of this earth, because they've got the hypnotic glasses you mentioned, they've got the communication device hidden behind a painting where they're talking to other people in this uh, in this plot, but we don't know exactly who it is yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Doctor... <laughs> The Doctor ends up in front of a firing squad at the end of the episode because he's being court-martialed. And that's where the Doctor died. That is where the Doctor died. <laughs> the gunshots go off and the music hits. I, mean, I think that's a fantastic cliffhanger. But here we are, mm. after week one, we still think we're in 1917. We don't. There's nothing to tell us otherwise with that. Yeah, exactly. And it, Like I said, there is a lot to like in this, and, and I'm trying to be as objective as I can be, but, you know, nobody's perfect. Um, well, just going back to one thing you touched on there, the um, uh, the communications device. Uh-huh. It's one instance of surprisingly good sort of special effects. When, I don't care if it's part one or part two, but when they bring Carstairs and Lady Jennifer in to look at the communications device, and they can't see it. Uh-huh. And then it sort of fades into view. They, they do that sort of stuff quite well for the time. And with these with this serial, it's kind of blatantly obvious that a lot of money went on the um, on the costumes, you know, on the various um, uniforms and, and things like that. Because that would have been cheap, you know, getting yes. 1917 Army clothes, American Civil War clothes, Mexican Civil War clothes, Romans turn up for yeah. a, just for a couple of scenes as well. And they've, they've even got chariots and everything. Mm-hmm. And with regards to some of that, I mean, the the reason some of these earlier serials are so long is to capitalise on the costumes they have bought. Mm. So you hear people from the production team of, of this time and, and other people far more knowledgeable than I who, who you know looked into Doctor Who and, and so on and, and interviewed various people. The reason some of these early Doctor Who's had 10 parts eight eight parts whatever is because they would get commissioned for a certain number of episodes per season Mm -hmm. they would then write a story and maybe sometimes stretch it out an extra couple of episodes because then they wouldn't need to spend any more money on different costumes or different sets for a totally separate story with regards to the chariots i mean this is a Something that is as a cliffhanger in a later episode. They, um, <laughs> I think it's episode two, isn't it? Jamie yeah. and uh, the Doctor and and so on run through some mist to get away from uh, World War One, a, a threat mm. from nineteen seventeen, and they're greeted by Romans storming at them. You know, Roman soldiers, chariots, etc. That happens again a few episodes later, and they suddenly realise, oh my goodness, we're back here again, and there are the Romans running at them again. They actually save money there because it's exactly the same bloody footage. Yeah, I clocked that as well. Um, <laughs> but that, to go to another of your points there, um, in this, a couple of good cliffhangers. Yes. Throughout the course of the I season. So. You know, the firing squad, the Romans, as you say. Um, there's there's a few of them, but obviously with, there's 10 of them. It's, it's hard to come, you sort of come to them all off the top of your head. Um, they did that very well. The, oh, there was the... Um, 
because the, the bad guys have got these TARDIS-like pods, haven't they? And yes. again, going back to the special effects, they materialise very much like the TARDIS, out of nowhere to carry in more troops or guards, what have you. Um, at one point, the Doctor, Carstairs and Jamie are trapped in one of these pods, and they're controlling the internal dimensions yeah. of this TARDIS-like pod to, with the, under threat of crushing them to death. That, I thought, was brilliant, and, and a really smart take on... On, on those pods and on the TARDIS itself. It's like, you know, dimensional controls, and they've, they even play that into the more wee-woo-beep-boopy side of things um, just after that, mm. which I think which I think was really clever as well. Um, but just to give a, a quick rundown of, of, what, of, of why we're sort of having to do it this way and just sort of bounce around, I'll give you a quick run. I'm going to go very quickly go through all 10 episodes and say who's captured by who. Okay. <laughs> so, okay. And then what we'll do then, Dan, is if you do that and you run through the, the captures and escapes and all that sort of stuff, um, after that, I think it'd be good to sort of touch upon some of the, I suppose, secondary characters, the supporting cast, and see who we liked and who we disliked from from, from the groups that are, in, are yeah. involved, maybe. Yeah, that'd be brilliant. Um, okay. And I've got my uh, I've got my usual list of tropes as well, and people who've Lovely. been in Doctor before and all of that, so we'll get into that. Awesome. So episode one, already been through. Dr. Jamie and Zoe captured by the Germans. Germans carjacked by the Brits, so everybody's under custody of the British. The Doctor sentenced to the firing squad, and Jamie and Zoe put to work. Episode 2, Doctor and Zoe escape. Then Jamie escapes because he's been held in a separate prison cell with another um, with another Scottish soldier. Everybody's then recaptured by the British. And then Doctor, Jamie and Zoe escape with Carstairs and Lady Jennifer, who we saw throughout episode one, who had been in the ambulance. Episode three, Dr. Jamie, Zoe, Carstairs and Jennifer essentially take uh, General Smythe's quarters hostage. It's <laughs> so a they're chateau, occupied. They keep, they, yeah. But we don't but we don't get we didn't get we don't get told that until many episodes later. Until about episode eight. Yeah. 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 Sorry mate, sorry. Yeah no it's weird. And then they escape and everybody gets captured by by the Germans again. <laughs> And then they all escape in the ambulance again. Episode four, Jamie and Jennifer get caught by the resistance because the soldiers in this are all sort of programmed to think, believe that they're in their time, they're fighting the war and, and all the rest of it. But a few people, the programming slipped and they're trying to find out what's really going on. Carstairs gets caught by the aliens. The Doctor and Zoe go after Carstairs, but get caught by the war chief and Carstairs, who'd been, who's been reprocessed. In episode five, the Resistance capture a character called Von Weich, who's one of the German, um, I suppose, agents for the aliens in, in the 1917 zone. So the Resistance capture him. The Doctor's on the run and Zoe's being interrogated. The Doctor then saves Zoe and Carstairs and they're all on the run and deprograms Carstairs. They all get back into... They all somehow they get back to the American Civil War zone. Then somehow Jamie and Carstairs get captured by the aliens again. Yes. <laughs> the Doctor then rescues Jamie. So or Jamie and Carstairs, so everybody's free. So they send Zoe to safety from the alien base, and then. The Doctor, Jamie, and Carstairs go to nick the 
mental processing machine. And that's the point where the Dr. Jamie and Carstairs get trapped in the pod at the end of episode six. Right. In episode seven, the Dr. Jamie and Carstairs leave the uh, escape in the pod that they were just trapped in because the doctor's got these weird makeshift smoke grenades. Everybody is then captured in the 1917 zone again, including members of the Resistance. The Doctor and the Resistance then take over the Chateau again. And then the aliens capture the Doctor just on his own. Mm. At the end of Episode 8, the Doctor, who appears to have joined the bad guys, captures everybody. As they Everyone. Are, all, all, the, all the main characters. So you've, by this point, you've got Jamie, Zoe, Carstairs, apart from Lady Jennifer. She's been sent off to... <laughs> it, it's, it's so 1969. Uh, she's essentially been sent off to do women's work. Um, and although she's a field medic, so, you know, but essentially the way it's framed, um, it was basically, we're not letting a woman go. And yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, she, she, asks, she asks the question, doesn't she? Am I not allowed to go because I'm a woman? And Jamie awkwardly sort of goes, um, well, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I mean, with Jamie, it's kind of, he's from 1745. Yes. But yeah, it's one of them. Um, in episode nine, the doctor frees all the good guys to assault the war room and, and get the fighting to stop and try and get everybody back to their appropriate time zones. And then in episode 10, everybody's nabbed by the Time Lords. Mm -hmm. And then the Jamie and Zoe are released back into their own time by the Time Lords. And the Doctor get, has his trial for, for crimes, you know, for breaking Time Lord law and gets uh, forced to regenerate. Oh, the bad guy, the, the head bad guy and his guards get executed. Yes. Yes, indeed. It's a lot of toing and froing, isn't it? It is, but just to give you an idea, because I'm an, as always, I'm an obsessive note taker. Between that companion document and my regular notes, episode by episode, I got nearly ten thousand words. Why? And I'm not going to use even a tenth of it. That's insane. <laughs> <laughs> my little counter here says eight hundred and forty-five. Um, <laughs> but I can't stop. <laughs> I need help. <laughs> oh. Yeah, it's oh, a lot of two yeah. and, and so on. Um, something that we do need to touch upon, I think, is the fact that you mentioned it there in your rundown of what was going on with people being captured and released and so on. Is the kind of mind control, programming, reprogramming aspect of what's happening. These soldiers yeah. from different time zones are being brought into the, the, the war games, so to speak, are being programmed to believe they're on their own time and they're battling this war you have the aliens who are in there as leaders for different armies and different in different time zones and so on to sort of supervise what's going on but we have these reprogramming well we, we're supposed to have a few but we only ever really see one don't we this little reprogramming machine it looks like one of those old style hairdressers uh, you know hairdryers you would get in in, in, a, <laughs> in a boutique somewhere and this rewrites people's minds to believe whatever they effectively whatever they need them to believe isn't it and again we come back to the hypnotic glasses and the monocle that the one guy has as well so he can you know out on the field so to speak they can effectively hypnotize or manipulate 
the people in front of them using those as well. And we also then have a separate device, which is used later on in the story, called the Helmet for Truth, or the Truth Helmet, or something like this. <laughs> yeah, it that's... Makes, um, it reminded me it makes, of... Sorry. sorry I was gonna say, it, it, makes, it makes them look like a sci-fi aardvark. It does, exactly. It looks like... Do you remember, you know, people of a certain age won't, won't know what I'm on about, but back at school, when the teacher would have to do, put something up on a screen, and they'd use those old-fashioned projectors... If you imagine the oh, top the of the projector. The OHPs. Yes, yes. The top of the projector just stretched and then stuck on someone's face. You know, have a couple of twiddly knobs to, you know, twist and make funny noises and ooh or misses. And it basically makes them tell the truth. Uh, so you've oh, got all these different funny. devices for manipulating the, the scenario, the situation, and people. What did you think of all of that? Was that... I mean, obviously, for me, it was, it was, a, it was a good tool in the story but do you think at times it was overused maybe um i don't think overused because i think we only saw a couple of interrogation scenes from okay. with the truth helmet and it it did the job in that it was the, the first person getting interrogated was zoe i think i'm oh, sorry jamie had sorry they interrogated jamie then they interrogated zoe and then the yes. doctor Jamie just told the truth, but Jamie's truth allies quite closely with what's going on because they do have Scottish soldiers, you know, fighting that particular war. The Redcoats and all that. Yeah, yeah the Redcoats as part of war games. So they're like, oh, well, maybe he's just been, you know, maybe the processing is just worn off and, you know, all the rest of it. Zoe from the 21st century completely throws them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the security chief has no idea what's going on. And then the doctor... He's just sat there and he's like, nope, doesn't work on me. Try and, turn my brain to, yeah, try and turn <laughs> my brain to soup if you want. So that's absolutely fine. And then the processing machine, I think it's kind of, it becomes a vital story element um, because the doctor wants to, to nick it to free more people from the mind control and then, you know, even to try and find a way to, to make the effects more widespread. So that is an essential piece of equipment for both sides to fight over. And that, you know, and, and adds to the stakes of what's going on. So I think in that regard, both of them were, were used absolutely spot on. Um, and going back to the special effects thing, I'd, I never thought I'd ever see 1969, the 1969 version, sorry, of a brain scan. Yeah, that was that was pretty spectacular, wasn't it? Yeah, you know, and it, it, it's you know it's an overlay thing where it's like it shows what you'd an interpretation of a brain with all the squiggles and all the rest of it. But it turns out that's a processed brain, and then they tried Jamie, and it's all blocks. And I thought I had a little chuckle to myself. Yeah, Jamie Blockhead, you know, <laughs> <laughs> he's just there to be a fighter, isn't he? But it was, um, yeah, I thought it was really good. Um, the one of the things that grated on me on on the second watch and a little bit on the first, though, speaking of all this sci-fi equipment, was the security chief and the war chief's constant sniping and bickering. Mm. That was yeah, an annoyance I mean, after a while. I was going to say, is that a time thing? Because it did go on for so long. I mean, it, ultimately, they have is. a falling out at the end, and they're building towards that falling out, aren't they? But the bickering and sniping, I think, was okay for, for a period. But then when you get into, like, eight episodes of it, you're just thinking, oh, lads, come on. You mm-hmm. know, was it sexual tension, maybe? Do they just need to get a room? Yeah, I think so. But um, actually, it's funny enough, going, I mentioned about the tropes before, um, both the war chief and the security chief do have a bit of history with Doctor Who 
uh, Edward nice. Brayshaw. Edward Brayshaw, who played the War Chief, uh, had three episodes as a character called Leon Colbert in the, the Reign of Terror in 1964. And James Bree, who was the security chief, was in 11 episodes between 1969 and 86. As well as this, he was also Nefred in Full Circle in 1980 and the Matrix Keeper in Trial of a Time Lord in 1986. Ah, oh, okay. We've got, um, if I, I'll, I'll do a couple more if you if you want while we're Yeah, uh, yeah, while crack while on. We're going to sort of get into some of the cast members, or well, the characters more so than the cast members yeah. in a moment. But yeah, this will be a good time. Um, I'll do a couple of the side characters because... Um, some characters will come up naturally as we go along. Um, but one of the German soldiers was played by a fellow called uh, David Biller, who had 11 episodes between in various roles from 1966 to 75. Uh, our old mate, Pat Gorman, he was uh, actually credited this time as one of the military policemen. Uh, we've now covered 16 of his 105 episodes of oh, Doctor. Good old Pat. Yeah. Good old Pat. Pat Gorman. Um Another person that we might see crop up quite a lot, Leslie Bates, uh, played one of the soldiers in 1862. Uh, he had 19 episodes from 1963 until 76, and he was one of the Time Lords in Deadly Assassin. Okay. Um, unique to this serial, uh, an actor called Louis Burkham was uh, an alien student, a Roman soldier, and a German soldier. All in this serial, which is the first time, I think, in our run that anybody's done a, a triple header in one serial. Why? <laughs> I didn't even notice. <laughs> no, nobody. I don't think anybody did unless you read the uh, read into it. Uh, just a couple more. Uh, the scientist fellow who was doing all the, um, the reprogramming and, yep. and reprocessing, uh, that's an actor called Vernon Dopchev. And this isn't a Doctor Who time, but do you remember, do you, did you ever watch much Father Ted? Yes. Um, so, do you remember the episode where Ted gets mistaken for a Nazi? Oh, it doesn't ring too much of a bell. It's been a long time since I've seen it. It's when there's, um, through a series of events, you know, it's like a perfectly square black patch of dirt on his on his window. Oh, yes, uh, yes. And he's throwing his arms around as he's speaking and people walk past and think he's, you know, doing the Nazi salute and all that. Uh, well, Vernon Dom. Vernon Dobchev would go on to be the uh, the old Nazi in that room full of awful memorabilia oh. uh, that Ted walks into with one of the with one of the priests, and then uh, Harper. Do you remember the character Harper, who was one of the uh, the generals in the uh, the American Civil War zone? Okay, right. Um, that is Patrick Truman, who has been in EastEnders since two thousand and one, and has been in one thousand three hundred and fifty one episodes. Why? Okay. See, I recognise the face, but I couldn't place well. It must be from that. Yeah, twenty-one years, uh, twenty-two years now in EastEnders, and one th- over a thousand episodes. Why? That's incredible. Fair uh, play. Yeah, and uh, the last one I'll do. I've only got two left, and one of them's in relate to the Warlord. It'll come up in a bit. But there was a character uh, in the Civil War zone called Moore, Private Moore, who. Mm-hmm was getting hypnotised by Von Weich and, and all of that. Um, he would go on to play Professor Hobbs in Midnight in uh, 2008 with David Tennant. Why? Yeah, the Professor character in that. He was also a guardian enemy of the world that we've seen. Yeah. And he plays uh, Peladon in Curse of Peladon in 1972. And his name is David Troughton. He's, ah. he's, he's Patrick's lad. 
Yeah, <laughs> yes. I knew Patrick Triton's son was in this episode. I didn't Twiggy was in other stuff as regular as that, though. Yeah, there you go. That's the uh, that's the little one I wanted to save till the end of that little spiel. Oh, that's amazing. That's brilliant stuff. Uh, with regards to these characters, then, I mean, let's start with, I suppose, some of the baddies of the situation. Yeah. Um, we'll, we'll start, we could start, I suppose, relatively low and build our way up. Uh, first of all, I suppose the foot soldiers that we have that are basically dressed as leather gimps. <laughs> what <were> your f- <laughs> That's well, very much of, that's of its time, isn't it? Let's be honest. That's a when, when you put it like that, I like them all the more. Um, <laughs> uh, it was it, it's fine. It's one of those where they've just looked at it and said, "We need something a bit sci-fi looking." We'll give them smocks and funny glasses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, and the glasses as well. I mean, I sent you a picture earlier on uh, of what you know was on the screen a few moments before that, and it was the the. Um, the scientist who was very much in charge of the reprogramming machine, he was giving a lecture to us, to a gang of students that Zoe and the doctor gate crash and sort of listening on and so on. And they're all wearing these glasses. But again, I understand it's the sixties and you've got budget restraints at the BBC and all this sort of stuff. But they basically, I mean, I think I used to make stuff like that out of cereal boxes when I was at school. They are wildly impractical. They are just nonsense. They've just got little crosses cut out over the eyes. Yes. Like, that is terrible for, for any sort of vision. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, it, it's crap. And it, it, oh, it, it makes me, it does make me laugh, though, when it takes the doctor just taking the glasses off for anybody to realise that they shouldn't be there. <laughs> not the fact that not the fact that, not the fact that in a in a room full of students there's a a middle aged man with a bowl cut rocking around, <laughs> and he's dressed in his normal second doctor yeah. attire, this ill fitting clothes and black jacket. Everyone else, I think, was wearing white, weren't they? <laughs> yeah, and he's there, he's there giving him pointers on how the technology works. And he's supposed to be a student. Yeah. Oh dear me. I do uh, like a bit. Of the, I do like a bit of the ridiculousness there. Though. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they were fine. Yeah, go on. Sorry, moving up then, I suppose, through the ranks, potentially. We have the uh, the security chief. I mean, first of all, I think this guy is shit at his job because yeah. he doesn't <laughs> he's supposed to be in charge of security. But as you mentioned brilliantly earlier on, Dan, you listed earlier, people are constantly breaking in, breaking out, left, right and freaking centre. And he's got no clue what's going on, this dude, does he? He's more concerned with bitching about the war chief than doing his actual job. He's more too concerned with making the war chief look bad than making himself look good. Yeah. And 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 who's got what jurisdiction and shit like that. It doesn't matter what jurisdiction you've got, you can't do you you can't do what you're meant to be doing. Um so he's a bit not quite um inconsequential, but he's just there to provide dialogue. And yes. by the end of it, okay, yes, he's sort of proven right in his suspicions. Um, about the about the war chief, but I don't know. I, I don't like the direction that they went in in how they instructed the actor to play him. He did. He just seems to be doing a really shit Dalek impression all the way through it, this. Yeah, he's very stiff, very wooden, very. This is my voice. jurisdiction. Yeah, that that voice is spot. Yeah, yeah. It's and I get what they're going for. They're going for. A little bit alien, you know, brutal, efficient, callous, cold, un- yeah. cold unfeeling. But it's fucking annoying. His voice is annoying. 
It is. Ultimately, which doesn't help. And and like I say, the constant bickering. I'm not a fan of the not a fan of the security chief character, to be honest. Nah. Um, and again, nothing against the actor. I, I think he did he did the best with the, what he was given, mm-hmm. but he wasn't given much. Conversely, the the war chief, I got master vibes from him. Yes, one hundred thousand. That was, that was be one of the next people I bought up. I mean, first of all, that is some incredible maintenance on that facial hair, isn't it? With all the angles and bad, curls, and he's such a bad mustache. Completely yeah. shaven top lip, but the side—he's got mustache sideburns. <laughs> and then this, the the actual sideburns are shaped into like curls and points and stuff. Yeah, yeah. I think he had. Uh, I think he got the uh, the old can of spray paint and stencils out like Hulk Hogan. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Apologies if you can hear any noise in the background. Uh, my uh, my old man's watching football. Um, uh, okay, no he, he gets uh, he gets quite enthusiastic. <laughs> he hasn't just got really strong opinions on the war chief, then. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> it, I get what you mean. It, it's very much a case of. I mean, if, eventually we find out that the war chief is a time lord. He is one of the doctor's own people, and mm. that's how they've got these. Um, well, Sid rats. They refer to them as a couple of times, which is hardest. <laughs> uh, I enjoy. I enjoyed that, by the way. Yeah, that was good. Quite. Good. Uh, but he's he's effectively given the alien race that aren't officially named, are they, Dan? And you never really find out who they are. No, um, and I wish I had a clever name made up from, but I didn't think to. So I'm just going to call them bastards. Yeah, okay. He gives the bastards the um, the Time Lords technology <laughs> to effectively assemble these war games. But then his motivation for this is when they get to their end game, he's going to overthrow them and take over anyway. So that's kind of the, the plot summarized as quickly as I can, I guess. But yeah, you're right. I got huge master vibes from this dude. He could have yeah. been the master. It quite easily. Yeah. I, I would have not have been sad to see him to see him more. I don't know if the war chief ever comes up again. I highly doubt it. Um, no, I don't think so. Well, no, he dies at the end of this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he gets he dies at the end of this. Doesn't get guns. Yeah. Oh, those square guns were a laugh. Yeah. With with the with the noise they made that boom, 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 like proper sixties shitty yeah. sci-fi <laughs> whilst being carried by the gimp guards. Um. <laughs> oh, you can't say you can't say. Oh, all they've done there is just maybe when you say about gimp guards and square guns, I'm thinking square peg round hole. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, uh, that that's obviously the the war chief. Around that, that sort of level as well, maybe a couple of stages below, is the bold German officer with the scar. Yeah, he's he's so him and Smythe are sort of bits are on a level, and they're between the, the sort of the grunts, the guards, yes, and the security chief. Yeah, I'd say, or you know, just below the war chief in rank, I'd say. Um, now, him, how much? I don't know if this was intentional, but this was just a rip off of Blofeld from the Bond films in the sixties for me. The guy's bold. He's got an accent. He's got exactly the same scar on his face for crying out loud. <laughs> exactly the same scar. <laughs> was he the one who like spin around in his chair with the cat? Oh yeah, he was linked. That he, that, that was all linked together. Yes, yeah. And yeah, no, it, Mr. Bond. I expect you to die. Yeah, it was a it was a well worn stereotype, wasn't it? Yes. And he had the mon- he was the one with the monocle, wasn't he? Which made it even more like Bond villain esque because he had, he didn't yeah. have the hypnotizing sunglasses. Uh, sorry, glasses. He had like just one lens. 
I'm sort of so powerful, I'm need one eye. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, my dear doctor, I expect to dress you like a gimp. <laughs> <laughs> why? Why in hex by round hole? <laughs> <sighs> we can manipulate the dimensions of these things, don't you know? <laughs> Oh dear, it's bigger on the inside. Um, <laughs> oh, God, this place is a shithole. <laughs> anyway, at the very top, we have the warlord himself. Now, I thought this guy was bloody brilliant. Yes, Philip Maddock. Uh, the Warlord, he played Elik in the Crotons in 1968. He was Solon in Brain of Morbius in 1976 and Fenner in Power of Kroll in 1978. And he did a good enough job in, in this to warrant every role. Yes. He was great. He was every, he was everything, I think, that they were trying to aim for with the security chief. But they couldn't have two characters be exactly the same, so they had to tweak the chief. Right, okay. And make him a bit more of a whingy bitch, I think is the crux of it. Um, the Warlord, there's a there's a great bit in one of the later episodes, I think it's episode eight, when the doctors agree sort of agreeing, quote unquote, to help them. And the war chief, uh, sorry, the warlord says, Are you going to interrogate your friends or reprocess your friends? And the doctor says they're not they're no longer my friends, they are our enemies. Yes. And the, war, the warlord just sits down, looks at him and just goes, we will see. Mm. And he's just like, he's like, you can feel that he's in control of the situation. He's giving the doctor a little bit of leeway on the chance that the doctor's actually turned and, and going to be part of this plot. But at the same time, he won't be surprised if the doctor's double crossing him. Yeah. Yeah. He's, uh, I think, I think he does everything very subtly. Mm. Here's this villain. It'd be very easy to go completely the wrong direction and ham it up and be that kind of Bond villain-esque of, ha-ha, no, Mr. Bond, here is my plan. You're going to die and all like, that sort of nonsense. Like Von Weick or Smythe, yeah, who are very yeah. exaggerated characters. Yeah, he is a lot more subtle. And I really like this. I think I think the dude looks cool as well. He, You look at him and you know he's a villain. He's obviously got some crazy facial hair going on as well, neatly trimmed up into certain mm-hmm. shapes. But he's got this sort of like half smile. He pops out every now and again, and it's really understated, but it just really, really works. I think he, he walks in and immediately takes over the scene, mm. even as a viewer looking at it. And it's something that I think is for me anyways, harder to, to register in black and white. Okay. Um, I don't know why that is probably just because I'm not used to watching black and white stuff. Um, but he comes in and immediately he's got this aura about him that he, that you know that this person is used to being the smartest person and the person in power in any given room. Yes. He manages con- to convey that just in the way he carries himself. Cause he's not the tallest person in there. He's not the biggest person. He's not it, to look at. He's actually quite unremarkable. But the way he carries himself and the way he speaks, it's a little bit like going back to wrestling, as we often do on this show. Um, it's like Jake Roberts. Yeah. In the, in, in the way he delivers his lines. In that Jake, in his promos, and he said as much as like, in an era when everybody was shouting, he'd talk quieter. 
yeah. to force people to listen to him. And there's a similar thing here with Philip Maddock and, and, and his portrayal of the warlord. To give him that sense of authority, he doesn't need to shout. He doesn't need to get into, you know, bust-ups or arguments or, you know, anything like that. He walks in, he says things, he's correct. And then it happens. But he's got that air of, well, I suppose it's sinister, isn't it? A rain. That's exactly like that. the, that's exactly the word I was going to use, and I forgot about because I went off on how he was delivering his lines. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, but it's, um, I suppose it comes back to the thing that you say all the time, with regards to things being more subtle and not hitting them over the head. Is it show, show, don't tell? I think you say, Dan, is it, yeah. or is it the way around? Yeah, and that's what he does. He, he, we as a viewer pick up on this without having to be told this guy is this, this guy is that. It just comes through the screen. But it doesn't come through the screen because they're being so over the top. It's real subtle little movements. And, and the way the other characters interact, and not literally, but figuratively, bow to his authority every time he's mm. in the room. Just with their body language, their actions, and the way he controls everything. It was really, really effective. Yeah, and I think it helps as well that even though I don't like the bickering, it serves a purpose in that the security chief and the war chief are, are always threatening each other with the warlord. Mm. In, it, it becomes a very much I'll tell dad kind of way, you know. <laughs> yeah. Don't do this, I'll, I'll, grass, yeah. I'll grass you up to dad. But then he arrives, it's like, oh shit, this guy is actually the authority in all this. He is the mastermind. He's... And, it takes, there's a little bit of arrogance in it, but you know that it's born of experience because he, he's perfectly happy to match wits with a Time Lord mm. than with the Doctor because he's already got one working for him. I think that's another, yes. another little element as well. You know, it's, it's, it's this sort of power dynamic in every scene that he's in. Um, yeah. And he really does, he really does steal the show and it, it's, Again, almost much like the War Chief, it's almost a shame that he's confined to this one serial because, you know, at the end of it, he gets put on trial by the Time Lords and summarily executed. But even when he's on trial on Gallifrey, he's got a plan. Yeah, he's 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 giving he's talking shit in the Time Lord court. It's about how he doesn't recognise their authority, and he's got his guys coming to coming to save him. Mm-hmm. His group of gimps. Yeah, he, yeah, he's got his uh, he's got his gimp army. Um, what would be the collective for gimps? Like um, a gaggle of gimps? A whimper. A whimper of gimps. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever seen uh, the episode of? If, well, first of all, have you ever seen Dad's Army? I'm assuming you have. I have. Have you ever seen the episode of Dad's Army when they finally meet up with the Germans in the U-boat? sort of arrives and the, the, the platoon actually interacts with enemy soldiers you know don't tell him pike when they ask his name and all that sort I, must, of stuff. I, I must have at some point because i remember that scene right. obviously it's an iconic scene in british company but i can't remember the episode in full yeah the captain of the german u-boat the, the the german who was in charge that's our buddy philip maddock all right really yeah, yeah funny isn't it? i just find that <laughs> i look in that yeah yeah funny little thing i didn't realize but there we go oh, yeah, i mean <laughs> What I also like about the, ty- the, the the war chief, sorry, the warlord, is for a little while, we're almost led to believe that what we're seeing is where things stop. This is the high, 
the, the war chief, the guy who is master, like it's quite easy for me to sort of forget about anything else. I think he is the main villain. And then this other guy comes in above him and it almost adds a, Ooh, factor yeah. when that happens. Several episodes yeah. in the, the, the shit's going down. Uh, yes. Yeah, yes. I do. I, yeah. I really like it. It's, it's it's when at one point the uh, the war chief because the war chief's going to double cross him as you say and he's had this talk with the doctor and yeah. when everything seems to be going their way he's very keen to say to the warlord well are you gonna you, you off you you fucking off and he just calmly says I'm gonna say I'm going to stay until the crisis until the crisis or whatever it is is over yeah it's like because he knows it's still going to go tits up and again it's you know it's it's this race of aliens whoever they are. Um, just just being, or at least certain being, almost on a time lord level. Mm. Yeah. Um, sorry, I was just scrolling through my notes. This is on a completely different note, but I mentioned it before when saying that they couldn't, uh, that Carstairs and Lady Jennifer couldn't see the uh, the communication device. Mm-hmm. I, I put it in my notes and I forgot about it. Is this one of the earliest uses of a, of a perception filter? Ah, okay. Yeah, potentially. There's another moment, isn't there, when the uh, lieutenant, is it Carstairs? Yeah. He is put through the reprogramming thing, Mm. stands back up, and the scientist points at the machine he has literally just been in and Mm. says, what do you see here? And the lieutenant says, sorry, sir, there's nothing there. Mm. So I said, yeah, so that's used a few times, isn't it? Yeah, that's a great show. Yeah, that that was a nice little uh, nice little bit of uh, Doctor Who law. Um, that, mm. or I suppose I suppose I say law. It's more headcanon for me. You know, I'm just deciding that's what it is. They never actually yeah. named it that. Uh, no, I'll go along with that. That makes sense. Yeah, but um, we, you know, we've been through a few of the villains. Um, how did you rate? Um, how did you rate Carstairs as a as a secondary character? Yeah, I, I, he served his purpose, didn't he? He. Yeah. Uh, the way the biggest thing for me with him was when he. He was working with Zoe and he was on the doctor's side and all that sort of stuff. But then he got um, overwritten, rewritten, reprogrammed, however they want to word it. Yeah. And Zoe goes running up to him to say, you know, oh, thank goodness you're here or whatever it may well be. And he pulls a gun on her because he thinks mm. that she is the enemy now. I thought that that sort of thing is really clever. The whole mind control and, and the turning of a character mid-show and all that sort of stuff. I, I, I like that sort of thing. I think that was great. Yeah, the, the complete switch where you get to to see an actor's range instantly in front of you. Yeah, I, I love anything like that. Um, funny enough, while I've been uh, I've been watching uh, the Flash season eight, it's one of my favourite programmes. Um, but one thing that does really well, and I'm sure I've said it on the show before, is because there's a, a multiverse aspect to it all. You can give actors multiple versions of the same character. Right. To play in a slightly different way or to, you know, to have an evil version or stuff like, like that. Like Inferno. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Um, yeah, it always, always gets a big uh, a big thumbs up from me. Uh, but you're right, Castez, you know, he had that moment. He was, he, he served a purpose. They the, the sort of alluded it, a bit of a romance between him and Lady Jennifer that never really went anywhere. Um, Lady Jennifer, she's a funny one for me because she's one of the first people we see, isn't she? And yeah. uh, when, when the TARDIS appears in, in episode one and you're in this war zone, it's supposed to be 1917 and there's bombs and gunfire and all that sort of stuff going on. And the doctor, Jamie and Zoe are like, oh, crap, this is terrible. Let's hide. And, you know, all this sort of sort of stuff. She just literally pops up out of nowhere and goes, oh, hello. How are you? 
As these guns and shit are just bullets are whizzing around her, and she she hasn't got a speck of dirt on her at all, despite being in this boggy, muddy no man's land. And she's just there going, "Everything okay, chaps? Do to jump in my little ambulance?" Yeah, just, uh, yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, it felt like there could have been more made of of Lady Jennifer because at time, you know, she, she has the points where she's saying, "What well, you leave me behind because I'm a woman." And yes. you know she has these moments of, of of strength and and all that, and but ultimately defers back to her duty as a as a, as a field medic. Um, I just yeah, there was, she has she has flashes of, of of being a really good side character, but wasn't necessarily given a lot because she essentially coordinates the communications for the the resistance effort later in the serial, yeah. where she's t- she's they've given out the orders and she's taking in all the reports of which communications units have been broken where and at what time, how many um, how many troops have shown up to, to fix it and, and bits and pieces like that. So the whole operation couldn't work without her. But we're not really shown a great deal of, of, of her as a character, of her as a person. And, yeah, the, for all the time spent elsewhere we don't get a lot of her which i think is a bit of a shame yeah yeah it is it is um the lady who played her actually only passed away a few weeks ago uh sort of the trail sort of oh, wow. mid-december last year so she was 88 at the time apparently so yeah she only passed away a couple of weeks ago so that's a so that's that yeah um with regards no, to Oh, sorry. <laughs> with regards to that though the, the the sort of her not being involved maybe as much I can kind of see why that is because there's all these different war zones happening and the doctor is going between them. And I quite like the way that we've got a lot of side characters. I mean, you look at the, the list online of people who are in this character wise, it's a long well, old list compared to what well, I did. <laughs> well, yes, yes, of course. And uh, it's a long old list, but we're not introduced to them all in one hit because I think sometimes we can lose sometimes especially in classic who when when we're like on a say say for example we're on a, on a spaceship somewhere and we have 10 back you know sort, sort of secondary characters we're yeah. all introduced to them in the first quarter of an hour they're all wearing the same gear because they're all in their uniforms it takes me three episodes to learn their names i because i'm not very good with stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. i'm completely lost so here getting and again it comes into the length of the story I suppose quite quite often we're saying the length of the story is a hindrance, but here I think it works to its advantage because it gives you time to learn, okay, these people are in this time zone, this war zone, sorry. Then the doctor buggers off elsewhere and meets more people, and then they come back again later in the story and you already know them. That, I think, the length of the serial, the whole ten parts, really plays into its hands with that. Yeah, the, the drip feed of side characters is is good. Um Again, I've said this before for a lot of series. I think the the way we consume, or the way I consume them now, doesn't help in that I will watch two, three, four at a time, right, and, and just blast through them. So at times I'm watching this going, "Hang on, who's that?" You know, the, but there's also a almost a reluctance, particularly later on when we've got the multiple resistance factions. There's a bit of a reluctance to address people by name. Yes. So I found myself forgetting Harper's name, forgetting Russell's name, um, even at one point forgetting forgetting uh, Arturo Villar's name. 
who is one of the sort of big stereotype characters. Oh, that was Osmond. Osmond him shortly, yes. This sombrero, the poncho, the, um, we'll call it obvious makeup used mm. to, uh, used to change his skin tone. Um, well, it is, it, even in black and white, you can tell it's blackface. <laughs> yes. And what we also get with him to really push home the stereotype here is he is the only character who has his own unique music when he appears on screen. You got, you got sinister bad guy. Yeah, you, you get like all the incidental music and, and the background music and, and certain music plays when the bad guys are around and all that sort of the suspense that they use and all that. When he appears on on screen, especially the definitely the first time, and I think maybe again later on, he's got his own sort of jaunty Mexican kind of stereotypical music to back him as he walks on. It wasn't the Cucaracha, was it? No. <laughs> no. That'd have been two on the nose, I think. But, yeah. oh, God. Yeah, but, uh, you know, at least, the thing is, when when they introduce Villa, which I suppose we'll come on to now since we're talking about side characters, yes. um, they actually, music aside, they build him up by reputation first as the leader of the biggest resistance group, but also very violent, um, more sort of bandit character in that he's taken his resistance members and he's now just causing chaos and just, just sort of going ham. So, you know, he's presented as another obstacle for the heroes to overcome, which I thought was very good. You know, that, that was brilliant. And then when he actually, when Villa actually turns up with his men, they've infiltrated the chateau and effectively have, I think it's Zoe at gunpoint because he wants to test their strength and, and, and all of that. So he's presented as a very loose cannon and mm. and somebody to be feared. And the problem is he quickly slips into parody. Yeah, oh yeah, does it ever? Really, really quickly slips into the parody. Accent. Like well. Oh it's the worst it's the worst accent that we've worst accents we've heard since Enemy of the World. It's um, I mean, to put it into context, this guy who is here being how shall I word this? Mexican dap, shall we say? Yeah. Uh, his name was, the actor's name was Michael Brown, and he was born in Bournemouth. So You, you can not, tell. He's not particularly Mexican at all, is he? <laughs> no, no. It's, um, yeah, but it's just, you know, it's bits and pieces, though. Like, he's, you know, he's a hothead, he's violent, okay. But you don't have to make him stupid. No. He, he can't be stupid. He's, you know, he's the leader of the biggest resistance faction. And yet they've got him when the doc when the doctor's captured everybody and he's been put in charge of their reprocessing, the doctor's blatantly just faking it so that he can get everybody together and, and, and take over the base. But who's the one that doesn't get it? It's VR. Yeah. 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 It's not the it's not the it's not the young lad from seventeen forty five. It's it, it's not the it's not the lieutenant from nineteen seventeen. No, it's not the it's not the I don't know where isn't it, but it's not Russell whenever he's from. I don't know maybe Boer War era. No, it has to be it has to be the Mexican. And yeah, it's not good. If, if if I'm giving benefit of the doubt, which I'm very loath to do, then they're trying to make him seem even more of a hothead because he's very quick to want to murder the doctor. Yes, very quick to anger, very quick to murder. So. Perhaps that was in the intention. It don't come across that way. No, 
It definitely doesn't. It definitely doesn't. Uh, the American Civil War characters. We spoke earlier on about terrible accents. There was a couple of people <laughs> representing the American Civil War, and this was not good look either, was it? The the Yankee references and accents they use. Yeah, it was not the worst, but not the best. I think is the uh, the nicest yeah. I can say about that. Yeah, it yeah, was. Um, there was no. Um, as far as I can remember, there was no overt negative stereotyping. Mm, yeah, fair enough. Uh, have we come across Zoe before? In our look back, uh, yes. Um, yeah, we've seen Jamie and Zoe before. Um, funnily enough, in the uh, the Five Doctors, Jamie and Zoe came back briefly, I believe. Yes, as, as hallucinations. Uh, Jamie and Zoe, I believe, were also an enemy of the world. Okay, Jamie was with the second Doctor for the majority of his run. Jamie was definitely there. I can't remember if Zoe was. No, Zoe came in in '68. She was only in it for a real short time. But wasn't who was the character who was sent to the kitchens in Enemy of the World with the with the with the sarcastic chef? Wasn't that Zoe? Uh, might have been. Might have been. I don't know. Hmm. But I mean, with regards to Zoe, she's obviously in a lot more episodes here. Yeah. How how did you find her? Because I I think she's I think she's quite good as a as a companion because mm-hmm. she's not she's not glaringly in your face and it's not that whole you know because Doctor Who kind of does this quite well with the female companions of you know women can do anything men can and rightfully so and, and all that and she very much bats uh, you know that you know beats that drum as well but it comes across a bit more subtle than we've seen with other characters. Yeah. I really like Zoe in this. She's obviously very intelligent and, but she navigates essentially the misogynistic bullshit of, of the other characters very well. She's the voice behind Jamie posing as, as the leader of clan McCrimmon to, to impress Via. Right. And when challenged, you know, when Via says, you know, why are you letting a woman talk for you? Jamie just says it's because she's right, you know, and and she ends up posing or posting all these ideas, putting all these ideas forward. She's she's very vocal. She's very good with it. And yeah, I I like Zoe, and I I, I would like to see more of her. And it, it it speaks a lot to her background with just how much the Doctor trusts her because obviously she's dropped off at the end of this in some sort of lab where I'm assuming she was picked up. Yes, and, the world in space, and, that was, yeah. Yeah, so the Doctor's immediately going to have affinity for her because she's a scientist. She's from the 21st century, so she's going to have a better handle on, on things than Jamie. Jamie, therefore, naturally defers to her, and he is effectively the muscle. Um, yeah, I, I like her. I'll, I'll, be, I'll be interested to see more of her. Um, just for... Um, Sorry, completely lost my words there. Uh, just so, from what we're talking about, from what we we're talking about earlier, it was um, it was Victoria in yes. the Enemy of the World. Yes, I think Victoria. I think Victoria leaves in Wheel in Space, which is when Zoe joins. Yeah, I think so. That would make perfect sense. I should have known that. What a knobhead. Yes. Okay. Uh, Jamie. Then we were talking about Jamie before, but here I think in this story, this really plays into Jamie's kind of always up for a scrap roots i think he's more than yeah. happy to, to to get you know roll his sleeves up and fight and his loyalty to the doctor is just absolutely fantastic i think oh, second to none you know jamie will defend the doctor to the hill and does in this 
Um, he's he's always there, ready to ready for the physical stuff. He actively gets in between the doctor and the rest of the resistance members who were trying to kill him at one point. Um, and he's, he's, <laughs> it's quite good because you know for for VR where they want to sort of show that he's a hothead and they do it very badly. Jamie to just let his mouth go before his brain. Yeah. <laughs> and that's when Zoe has to pull him back. And I think that's why it, the whole sort of dynamic works together because the doctor will defer to Jane, will defer to Zoe if he needs a bit of science, a bit of science advice. Mm. If he needs a bit more brute strength and, and whatnot, he'll go to Jamie. But the the two companions really complement each other very well. Do you think maybe that's because one's from the past, one's from the future? Obviously, there's more yeah. to it, the characters themselves. But if you want to strip it right back, that is the big difference between them, the big comparison between them. And it's not really something we get in New Who, is it? We don't have past no. companions, I suppose. Like, I'm not talking like, you know, just picking somebody up in the 60s or whatever. I'm talking, I mean, Jamie was from the 1700s, as, as you said, Dan. We don't get that in New Who, do we? No, I mean, there's 400 years between Jamie and uh, and Zoe, and they are kind of opposites in almost every way. Mm. You know, even even now, you know, male, female, past, future, um, scientist, soldier. They're, they're just there's a natural complement to each other there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, uh, apparently, uh, Fraser Hines, the guy who plays Jamie, has been in contact with Russell T Davis and asked for if there's any way that they could do the character of Jamie some uh, some justice and have a big uh, a big send off or, or part of a story in new who coming up as as Russell T Davis writes more for for the program i for one would love that yes so would i um he's he's 78 now Fraser Hines so so it's not beyond the realm of possibility um even if you know if cuz Jamie gets you get, Jimmy and Zoe get little send-offs here. They essentially get put back where they were found, you know, after the first adventure with the Doctor. Um, but he just runs off straight into a battle. Yes, straight I into think, a fight. <laughs> straight towards a gun. <laughs> yeah, because you don't, you don't try and kill a McCrimmon. You know, it's, it's obviously an age where they don't have repeater guns. You know, they, it's, it's one shot and then try and reload as quick as you can. Um I'm sure they could write that, and if anybody can do it, Russell T. Davis can. Yeah, you know they could even have it as um, something like I don't know. The Doctor intercepts him and and you know brings his memory back somehow. Mm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I suppose then, as we're sort of you know coming towards the end, I guess here we need to cover the end of the story, don't we? And yeah, effectively, what happens? I, I suppose. I suppose the end of the story is broken into two parts because part nine of the serial is effectively the end of the war games tale for me. Yeah. It's how the doctor, uh, he he's pretending to rewrite people while still pretending to work with the bad guys. So to speak, they kind of end up taking over the war room. Um, the security chief here tickled me because the, the the doctor and, and the, his resistance group that they've built, Storm the war room, which is like the the main hub, isn't it? The main headquarters. The security yeah. chief's on the other side of the room to try and escape. He does a funny little squat run, doesn't he? He crouches <laughs> yeah. down and then tries to run whilst crouched down. He looks like a funny little munchkin. Yeah. It's a it's a very strange little run. Um, mm. But you know, I like I like this. It's um, 
it has that that line that I mentioned before. They're no longer my friends; they're our enemies. The Doctor's been proven to be a force for good all along. He's he has a face off with um, uh, with the War Chief, where the War Chief just said, "It seems my trust in you was misplaced." He said, "Did you really think I'd take part in your disgusting scheme?" Um, disgusting scheme. <laughs> yeah, it, it's. It's just great. I really liked it. And then, it, let me just have a look here. Um, for, actually, funny enough, I was saying about migraines earlier, I've started with another one, so I'm struggling to read my notes. Oh, shit. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll muddle through. Um, where were we? Yeah, this time as well, we've got the extra layer of the, um, the security chief having recorded the War Chief's conversations with the Doctor. And unveiling yeah. the plans for for turning on the uh, on on the aliens and all of that, so that was a real nice little touch. Um, but again, I think the length of the story allows you to have all these different layers when we get to the end, mm-hmm. because you've got all these different figureheads in the in the in the evil side, I suppose. Yeah, and they're all kind of turning on each other now. Yeah, yeah, they've all got their own separate evil motivations. Whereas the Doctor is now, you know, foiling their plans altogether. But then we've got the the the, the running undercurrent all the way through the last couple of episodes of the fact that the the time machines, the the Sid rats uh, that that they they are using, I've only got limited lifespans, and they're all oh, running. That was that was great as well. You I know, so the Doctor was thinking we're going to use these machines to get everyone back home. But you can't. And he can't do it in the TARDIS because he can't pilot it properly, as Jamie takes mm. great pleasure in pointing out on more than one occasion. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Jamie loves taking the mick out of the Doctor about that. So he does. It kind of leaves the Doctor with only one alternative, Dan, doesn't it? Yeah, but it sets the cliffhanger at the start of episode nine. Because mm. the Doctor's there and he's saying, um, you know, the, uh, the Watcher show is based on the old model TARDISes. And the Doctor's marvelling at the dimensional flexibility and the remote control. And, you know, with these older TARDISes, as we know, uh, it was impossible to do that back in the day without shortening the life of the time control units. You know, that's, well, it's TARDIS 101, basically. It's we will beep beep page one, isn't it, really? Yeah, pretty much. Um, the War Chief saying, no, there's been many advances in the technology and, and the Doctor doesn't quite believe him. And he kind of weasels it out of him saying, you haven't solved the issue, have you? You're on borrowed time. That's why you need me. <laughs> and it's, it's, that, it's that lovely little Patrick Troughton smile where he's saying, oh, bless. <laughs> yeah. And, and the war chief is like, drats, I have been foiled. They've got me. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's just, it was a little bit pantomime maybe in that moment from the war chief, but Triton was so good with it. So good. But yeah, it kind of leads to, I suppose it kind of leads to, to the end game, I guess, because, by the end of episode nine, we've kind of ended the War Games story. Episode ten is almost like uh, the aftermath of it because the Doctor has to summon the Time Lords to get everyone home. It's like an epilogue. Yeah, um, and and it's brilliantly done because the the War Chief and the Doctor both show genuine signs of fear and panic, and they mm-hmm. want to get out of there. And the Time Lords, by the way, we've we've only had them named in in this story. The Doctor's people being referred to as Time Lords, we've never seen them before. The only reference we've had to the Doctor's people previously, I think, was the meddling monk going back a few right. years, a few stories. And it was it's that case of we're now getting so much more information about the Doctor's background. But the Doctor at the same time wants to get away. And it's done yeah. so well. Yeah, to, to 
to get away, he's got to call in the the one sort of thing or the one people that can actually capture him and keep him grounded. It, it really is clever. We get the death of the war chief as well. Yes. The warlords heard the recording and tweaked his plan and is obviously an evil bastard, so decides to murder him. Just guns him dying. Well, he gets the gimps to get him dying, doesn't he? Yeah, the, the gimp guns are a-firing. Yeah. The whimper of gimps are all even gun him dying. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the... Uh, the end of episode nine is, is very much a slow motion run to the TARDIS by the Doctor and his companions as they're fighting through a force field. And it's very... 1960s. For time. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very 1960s sci-fi, isn't it? Whoa, we're going so slowly as they're it's, trying to battle against the, the force field. time lord. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then part 10 begins and they actually manage to battle through this, get into the TARDIS. The TARDIS is then bought back and it's on the sea but then sinks into the sea yeah and we Not... get a few drips because the, yeah, the time it's... lords are somehow breaking down the defences remotely and it's kind of it's a nice little thing showing that no matter where he goes he can't run away because the, the, they try to want to run away they end up in the sea yeah. they try deep space they get you get a voiceover essentially communication then they end up in a swamp with crocodiles Mm. And, and bits and pieces like that and finally end up on Gallifrey. But the you know, the voiceover saying that the doctor's broken their laws and they have to he has to stand trial and and all the rest of it, it's you know, the doctor's trying to you know, Jamie's trying to figure out what the problem is. Mm. But the doctor's very sort of evasive in it. I thought it was all very good, you know, sort of selling the panic. And then it seems like a bit of misdirection because when they finally get do consent and go back to Gallifrey they're brought in as witnesses rather than the doctor as the defendant. Yes, yeah, witnesses against the the uh, war lord, isn't it? For and they basically end up executing yeah. the guy. They end up executing the guy, and then it's the doctor's turn to face trial. With regards well, to the image of the TARDIS, sorry, go on. Sorry, with regards to the image of the TARDIS on the sea, that's actually taken from uh, Fury in the Deep or Fury of the Deep. Sorry which is an older Patrick Triton story, oh. but it, that doesn't exist anymore. It's one of the episodes that's missing. So the only known footage from, um, uh, from Fury of the Deep is this clip in the War Games, which is kind of a really weird little backwards twist, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And now we've covered two episodes. Um, Yay! <laughs> two <laughs> Fury of the Sorry, yeah. 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 Um, I can't remember what I was going to say. It wasn't quite as simple as just executing the warlord, though, was it? Because, as I mentioned before, he, he's got his uh, his whimper of gimps coming to try and save him. Yes. Um, you know, taking, you know, has the bottle and the nerve and the balls to to actually attack the Time Lord Court, which has much more significance looking back um, than, than it probably would have at the time. Think that's very good but then you know the time lords are the time lords the one step ahead and they uh, they dematerialize him for his crime so it's like he'd never it never existed yeah. yeah yeah a fitting i suppose punishment if the time lords are going to do it i guess it's very grandiose isn't it and very yeah. you know erasing you from time effectively it's very time lord-esque i think you have to ask though with the war chief and, and his death you could actually bring him back because you can either say that he's dead, dead because that was his last life, or maybe he regenerated and set the whole thing in motion again. So you could, you know, even now you could still, you know, revisit the war games idea. 
Yeah. So yeah, I'd that. like that. I'd like that. Yeah, it's trying, you know, trying to do it again. You know, this villain coming back called the War Chief, trying to raise this force to become a galactic ruler. Only if he's got the same beard. Well, he can have it like a calling card because in the Matt Smith era, they allude to a, a time lord called the Corsair, who in every regeneration always had the same tattoo. Okay. Of, uh, of the snake, of you know, snake going, you know, eating itself essentially, uh, and going in a circle. So you could have you could have that facial hair be like a calling card. Yeah. For the bullshit. Yeah, I like that. Okay. Uh, we we basically then get to the doctor trying to defend himself, don't we? He has to. Uh, well, he, he's trying to put forward the viewpoint that he he's on trial for breaking their laws. He's interfered. And the Doctor has a frustration with the fact that the Time Lords have all this power, all this capabilities, you know, and, and so on, but don't do anything other than observe. And at one point he lists this as a reason for him leaving because he was bored. We later find out in future stories that that's not the case. But he says he was bored and it's not right and there's so much to explore. And then he gets himself involved and tries to help people. So he has effectively broken their laws by getting involved, but he argues it's always been done for the right reasons. And yeah. he then lists a huge amount of victories he has had. He lists, when we see images of them as well, don't we? The, the Ice Warriors, the Daleks, the Cybermen, and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, we do. It, it was actually quite, because he called it a, a mind screen or something like that. Mm. Um, but he has a little swipe at them as well. He says, you know, he's proud of what he's done and all that. He says, you know, that you've not been doing anything. So, but I don't know, of course, you're above criticism when they say that they're not on trial. Um and he, he, he lists the Ice Warriors, the Cybermen, the Daleks. And, but I think there's a few more before that as well, because he does it in like two bursts. Yes. I like, oh, that was it, it was the Quarks, who were the, yeah. the robot servants of the Dominators. They uh, the Yeti. Yeah. <laughs> but the Yeti, who were more robot killers, who were trying to take over Earth. Um, you know, court scenes can, in wider media can often be quite, quite boring, you know, or lacklustre. But something like that, I thought, was a really nice take on it. Yeah, and he then obviously... The Time Lords then, I suppose, uh, uh, they've got to go away and think about this. They've got to, you know, okay, we'll, we'll take this, you know, your points under consideration. And they go off to have a little think. This is when the Doctor basically lies down and plays some cards just to pass the time. <laughs> yeah, it was like a weird circle version of Solitaire. Yeah. And the Doctor... Then I suppose Jamie and Zoe are brought to him to say, effectively say they're good boys. And this escalates them pretty quickly through the rest of the episode, I think, because they're being sent back to their own time, as you mentioned earlier, Dan, and having their memories of the Doctor erased of other, besides their first meeting. And the Doctor is already, he, he's resigned to this now. He knows there's no way of, of altering this. He knows this is going to happen. And the way he says, you know, goodbye to Jamie and, and is is really nice for me. It's really it's quite solemn mm. and it's it's quite sad. It's it's quite a touching moment. But then we see footage of Zoe and Jamie, as we mentioned earlier, and the doctor openly laughing at Jamie running at this bloke and, and fighting, knowing yeah. that oh he he's gonna be all right. He's having a whale of a time. So that was quite a nice touch, I think. Yeah, and then you had sort of again with the, the opposite between Zoe and Jamie. Yeah, Jamie going off to, to fight, which he you know he loves he loves doing, and it's it's all you know well and good. And Zoe gets dropped off, and but she she does these odd look backs as if she's and says that she feels like she's forgotten something important. Yes, 
and he has that Trout has that moment, doesn't he, where he's he just asks the Time Lord, Lord if you'll be get me teeth in. He asks the Time Lord if you'll be all right. Yes. So it's again that sort of switch between between the between the just like yeah, Jamie's fine, he didn't get shot. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's always back in a lab, well, should be okay. Yeah, like, yeah they're both will be fine. But that's you know, that's more than certain characters get in the future. Yeah, especially in classic who some of the some of the exits of characters are, are not dealt with as well as they could be, I think. But I also think as well, in New Who, the exits of companions sometimes can be over elaborate as well. So trying to find the happy medium, I think, you know? Yeah, I mean looking at the one I always like is Martha. Yeah, um, she decides enough's enough, don't she? <laughs> yeah, she's like, we've just had a year where I've been travelling, travelling a, a toclophane controlled master ruled world where I've been trying to, you know, trying to get this resistance built and all that. She's like, I've had enough. I'm going to go be a doctor. I'm, I'm sick of waiting for you to fall in love with me. I'll go do my own thing. <laughs> Well, yeah, exactly. actually, with, actually, with Martha, the one that bugged me when David Tennant does his tour around all his old companions, um, when we last see Martha, we see Martha at some point, and she's engaged to one of the side characters we see in her final episodes. Right. Yep. And then the next time we see her on David Tennant's final tour, she's somehow inexplicably married to Mickey. Yeah. <laughs> oh Martha she gets around but even back then you know 10 or more than 10 years ago I looked at that and thought they've just stuck the two black characters in together yeah I, yeah, I get you because they didn't want to have more than one scene mm. or because they wanted to tie it down it's just like uh, really yeah I get you really <laughs> Uh, the Doctor is basically then told they've decided they're not going to execute him, the Time Lords. They've taken into consideration that he has done good with his meddling, but he has still broken those laws. He has still been meddling. So by way of looking at where he's been visiting, they see he has a certain affection for Earth in, in yeah. the 20th century. So he's going to be exiled there. The Doctor points out that that could be tricky because they really, they already know what he looks like. So they're going to force him to change his appearance. It's still not called regeneration at this point in the show. I don't think that comes in until maybe the fourth Doctor, I think, mm. or, or, or you know, something like that. Yeah, I don't know what it comes in, but it's, you know, there's, it, and it's said with almost a smirk as well, like your appearance hasn't changed before. Mm. And it made me laugh because it's another point where you can tell the budget's running out because they give him the option of what it could look like. Yes. And... You know, he's being very particular and very, you know, too fat, too thin, too old, too young, too this, too that. And then they're just like, we can just do this, you know. We don't have to give you this choice. Yeah. There's, oh, well, well, hang on, hang on, hang on. You know, it's always that, it's it's that, wait, 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 we're just stalling constantly. But all the pictures that bring up are just drawn, look like they're drawn in pencil. Yeah, they are just like sketches, aren't they? It's... <laughs> It's not great. No, it's not. It's not. It, but the way Triton just rubbishes every single one mm. gets me. The way he just literally is like, nope, that's wrong. Nope, that's wrong. No, what well, he won't do at all and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. It was just 
typical Triton, and I loved that the way just you know the way he was. Ultimately, we then see the Doctor. Uh, he, he's going to have his TARDIS tampered with, so he can't travel anymore. He's been sent back mm. to twentieth century Earth. We get some really good gurning from Patrick Triton to show oh, that his face God. is changing. He's like, yeah. rrr, 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 and all this. It, do you know what it reminded me of? Um, it, which is weird considering it came nearly, came nearly 30 years later. Uh, the regeneration scene in the movie from Sylvester McCoy to Paul McGann. Oh, yeah. Okay. Where you've got Sylvester McCoy on the slab, you know, um, having been injected with the anaesthetic and, and the regeneration slowed down. And he's there again, you know, contorting his face and giving it, you know, <laughs> you can imagine just making those noises. He's get, trying to get his mouth over as far as it'll go to one side and, you know, <laughs> just gurning like he's dropped something he shouldn't have done in the pub toilet. Yeah, it, it's, it, it is quite an interesting throwback to that movie, isn't it? You're right. But we don't see John Pertwee. That's not. Mm. That doesn't happen. The first time we see John Pertwee is Spearhead in Space, his first episode, which is the first time Doctor Who is in Yeah. Canada. And, and the Doctor actually, falls out of the TARDIS. And, and that's the first time we see that. Yeah, I actually okay. went and watched that um, on the back of this because I wanted, like I said, I wanted to see how it how it was handled. Um, I can't remember, I don't, I don't think I finished Spearhead from Space, the serial, because I was just like, I watched a couple and I was like, well, I should really save it for, mm. you know, when we get to actually watch it as part of the show um, but I like how they introduced him of just the TARDIS essentially crashing or, or him not not quite crashing but him just being deposited yes yeah it's good I, I watched I did the same as you I started watching Spearhead from Space afterwards as well and I thought this is good I'm enjoying this and I stopped I was like no I've got to stop because me and Dan might bang to cover it but it goes from black and white to colour as well doesn't it yeah there's quite a few um, changes isn't there because as you say it goes from black and white to colour Obviously, we have the Doctor changing. The whole cast effectively changes. It, you know, in the past, we've had the only ever regeneration we've seen companions carried across. Whereas mm. in this one, the whole cast changes. Uh, we have new companions. We have the introduction of Unit properly as a regular reoccurring thing on, in the John Pertwee era. He's stuck on Earth, which was done for budgeting reasons. I mean, Doctor Who, after season six here, which is Triton's last season, it was on. It, it was kind of being threatened with cancellation. Mm. And the way they managed to convince the BBC to allow them to continue filming the show was by promises of bringing set costs and costume costs and I suppose general production costs down by having it just in in you know in units in the UK and so on, so they didn't have to pay for a new alien spaceship every other week, I suppose, mm. and that allowed them to get recommissioned. By the time the last episode of the war games aired. It was known Pertwee was going to be the next Doctor. Yeah. But you didn't obviously see him until several months later in Spearhead from Space. And there's also this funny little side track called Series 6B. Have you heard of this, Dan? I have, yeah, but I can't remember. Rob, uh, Rob went through it before, but I can't remember for the life of me what it is. It's basically... the. the there's comic books out there and i think even you know john pertwee has commented on some of some of it as, and so on as well and i've not done masses of looking into it for this i'm just just going off the top of my head so you have to bear with me but effectively there's a gap between triton being sent off by the time lords yeah and john pertwee arriving in spearhead from space and that gap there's uh, comic book tales 
of this time where Triton is still the Doctor living under threat of these punishments he has been given. Mm. And then the last story is the Time Lords inflicting the regeneration, sending him off, and then that ties in them with Spearhead from Space beginning on television. Yeah. So there's tales right there of Triton being the Doctor and so on, yeah. Um, With regards to Triton's regeneration then, one thing I... It fits with the story, I guess, because of what's happening at the time. He's spinning around, he's plummeting away, and he's gurning away. Mm. It fits with what's happening on the screen, but I think it is a bit of a shame that a Doctor who is fast becoming one of my all-time favourites, his last real lines in the show are, you're making me giddy. Yeah, this is not um, not dignified last words, really, are there? Um, no. It, it, you know, it's not like nowadays the Doctor tends to get a... A, a fairly grand speech. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, because the well, they've written it in that the Doctor can, you know, it takes a long time for a Time Lord to die. Effectively, mm-hmm. so even though the Doctor knows the dying, like Capaldi, got the big speech. Um, Tennant did his retirement tour essentially, and then Smith got his big speech as well. It's um, it, something of an anticlimax, um, really, because like you say, Troughton is is so much fun. As the doctor, he's you know he goes from cheeky scamp to intelligent, almost I don't want to say menace because menace is the wrong term, but fierce sort of intelligence, yeah, and and, and moral compass. Um, he, he handles that switch very well, and yeah, then he's just oh eh, oh oh no 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 you're making like you say you're making me giddy, yeah. It's quite a big gamble, I think, as well for the show because it almost feels like very much the end of an era. Not just because of the black and white into color thing, but with the Doctor not being able to travel, and yeah. also, I mean, Jamie up to this point, Jamie was the most popular companion they'd had, I think. Mm. Uh, he still very ranks very very high in all the countdowns and Doctor Who magazine and all that sort of stuff as best companions ever, and that they were losing that actor supposedly halfway through the season, but they convinced him to stay on until the end after Patrick Trayton had announced he was leaving at the end as well. Yeah. Uh, they were hoping, apparently the producers, that Zoe was going to stay on, but when she mm. saw that her two friends were leaving, she said she was going to leave as well. So it's quite a big step, I think, for the show. It's almost like going from classic Who to new Who, in a way, because it's a complete mm. new step into the unknown for me. Well, yeah, it's massive. You, you then rely on your audience, who are attached to these characters, to come back and, and take a punt on what you're putting in front of them. So that's exactly. enormous, enormous pressure to get it right in terms of, mm. in, in every sense, you know, the writing, the acting, the direction, the the look and feel of the show. It's, yeah, it's enormous. And, and to add to that, like you say, you, you come into it with with colour and with the, with the limitations um, and things like that. It's, yeah, it, it's massive. It, 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 the only thing to happen bigger than that is bringing Doctor Who back. Yes, because I was—I don't know who—I don't know if it was Peter Capaldi who I read a thing recently was saying, you know, when when Doctor Who came back, he was he was looking for bits and pieces to to see, you know, is this is going to be as good as it was? And looking at Eccleston's first episode, and you, you know, it was you see the TARDIS and it's blue. Thank God for that. And, <laughs> and, and then you've got the Autons who are a classic villain, brilliant. He said, mm-hmm. but it, but it was Eccleston. And one of his speeches, you know, the speech at the end where he's said, well, you can feel the, uh, the, the feel the movement of the earth. Yeah. And things like that, that makes it, okay, yeah, this is the Doctor. Yeah, very true. 
Very true. Ah, so then, Dan, to summarize, I guess, War Games, 10-parter, a regeneration, a changing cast, Patrick Troughton. What are you thinking overall? Love Troughton. Really enjoyed Jamie and Zoe as a, as a duo for the Companions. Uh, the Warlord and the War Chief were very, very good villains. Um, for all, they were quite sort of hammy and, and, and over-exaggerated and a bit sort of Bond-esque. I didn't mind Von Vyke and Smythe as underlings. Okay, yeah. Um, Lady Jennifer was somewhat underutilised. Carstairs was there. Like I said, the purpose of no great shakes. Um, so character-wise, yeah, it was it was it was fine. It was, de- you know, it was, it was a base level of decent uh, with a few with a couple of really good performances. Um, setting aside my sort of bias on this as a, as a second watch and, and the time it took to make notes etc um, I don't mind a longer story it, and I understand the reasons why it wasn't but it still felt it, like it could have been an 8 part rather than a 10 parter yeah. It, yeah it was like I say I use the phrase spinning its wheels um, it never got bogged down but there were times when it was creeping forward you know <laughs> so <laughs> It's yeah. it's one it's one to watch when you're already invested, Doctor Who, as you said. Um, it it's one of these that I think because of the length of it, and because some of it didn't necessarily, you know, I wasn't enthralled by the whole ten parts. You know, there was episodes where I was like, yeah, that's fine. It won't get one of the sort of high spots when we wrap up this season. Mm-hmm. But it'll never be one of the worst things you can watch. It, it's it's gonna it's gonna end up sort of mid table, I reckon for me. Okay. Um, it does get extra points for having the regeneration scene and for tying up two companion stories um, quite nicely. So yeah, we'll see what we'll see what happens when we come to it. But at, right now, I think it won't make so it won't make the Champions League places in my table. You know, I don't think it's going to make top three or four. Mm-hmm. But it'll be in that sort of five to seven or eight block. Okay, I get you. Uh, for me, I loved this. I, I didn't mind watching. I get your point. If it was an eight-parter, it would have been a little bit smoother, a little bit more concise, a little bit more to the point. But even that, I didn't mind being a ten-parter. And I sat and watched this effectively in not quite one hit, but nearly. I watched two episodes and then watched the remaining in one hit. And I, I, I loved it. I thought it was great. I, I loved the premise of the war zones and what the you know the, the plucking armies and soldiers out of time. Triton is just fantastic. Every time we watch Triton, I, I, I love the guy even more. I, without going back now and looking at what we've already covered for this season, and obviously not knowing what you know, not having covered what we're going to cover yet coming up. Mm. I think this is going to rank at this moment in time. I think this is going to rank pretty damn high on my end of season countdown. I enjoyed it that much. I thought it was really, really good. Yeah, that's fair enough. Um, it's it's one of those ones where I can fully appreciate why it will be up there for you. Okay. Um, without having to agree with it. Um, yeah. I think that's the sort of thing that we could that we can say about it. We have because we have watched some dross this season. <laughs> yes, we um, have. <laughs> you know. But then, fucking flying fish. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, uh, the, and the fish vampires. Um, well, this is it. But I think you're right as well when yeah. you say that 
if you're new to Classic Who, this is not where to start. But yeah. when you've got an appreciation for Classic Who and you learn how to kind of overlook some of the wobbly side effects, sound effects, uh, special effects, sets, uh, some of the accents, some, some of the shortcomings because of when it was made, I suppose, mm. it's one to dive into. But yeah, it, it, I think yeah. you're right when you say it's not one for somebody who's brand new to Classic Who, but it is still a great story there. Yeah, I, I like to think so. And, and you know, I'll, I'll go away and sort of move this over when I'm, you know, looking at the final list. And actually, looking back on it on it now, I'm thinking, you know, is this any worse or any better than, say, the Curse of Fenric or the okay. Sea Devils yeah. or, or anything or, or anything or even or even Deadly Assassin? You know, can I, in good conscience, say that? one's better than the other or is it going to be quite difficult I think it is but I just I, I, I think the length of it is going to you know regardless of how good the premise of the story is and things like mm-hmm. that I, I think that is going to end up being the deciding factor and yeah. you know we'll, we'll cover it when we get there because we've still got um, we've still got four more episodes uh, of, of this season left uh, left to record uh, oh, sorry mm-hmm. left to release and, and three left to record so who knows what can happen between now and then Exactly, mate. Exactly. Speaking of which, what are we looking at next week, bud? Next week, we've got our third guest of the series. Uh, we mentioned them earlier. Uh, we've got AB coming on. Uh, official underscore AB pause, I think, is the, is, uh, is the Twitter handle. Yes. And uh, we're looking at some uh, some Colin Baker with an actual Colin Baker fan, who awesome. uh, I, I didn't expect existed. And uh, we're going to be looking at... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're going to be looking at Mark of the Rani. Mm. Which, uh, which you know, full disclosure, at time for recording, uh, because all you know, sort of scheduling went a bit, uh, a bit skew with. We have already recorded uh, <laughs> at time recording, but I'm excited for people to hear that uh, because it um, <laughs> basically, I've, I've, from what I remember, I feel like me and AB just kind of ran away with it a little bit. <laughs> so I was just, <laughs> so I was just left there thinking, what the fuck are you on about? I just leave you two to it. I'm just like, you know, um, and by the way, I've still got to go back and edit that episode. I brought the file up yesterday, last night, thinking I'll start yeah. this tonight. And it came up at three and a half hours long. I was like, fuck it. I ain't touching that tonight. We did, we did have a fair few tech issues as I recall. Yes, that's true. Yes. Um, from, I think from mine and from AB's end, but, um, AB actually, funnily enough, uh, speaking to AB earlier today, uh, did say to uh, apologize for the editing job. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm going to have to dive into that shortly, I think. I might get that done this evening. But there we go. Dan, do you want to let everyone know whereabouts they can find you and all your brilliant content online, my friend? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at DanGriffin21, usually tweeting about wrestling that's a minimum six weeks out of date, or movies and TV shows like Doctor Who that are a minimum of 25 years out of date. Uh, <laughs> if you if you want to hear more of me, I'm on Unbooking the Territory with uh, my good friend UTT Rob, uh, where we look at the first and last of professional wrestling. We do stretch that concept uh, for anything from, for example, with your good self-signed Josh Goodwin, we looked at the first episode of Game Show NXT, and then mm-hmm. just at time of recording, the last episode of uh, that we recorded was looking at an episode of uh, the love boat the next wave uh, that just yeah. just because it happened to feature kevin nash and goldberg <laughs> amazing <laughs> and uh, we we do have a side project uh, it's called unbooking the tankatory where we look at the life and times the trials and tribulations and the in-ring career in wcw of one mr david tank abbott legitimately the hardest man to ever live 
Indeed he was. Indeed he was. Uh, anything I am involved in, you can find on the network that carries this show. And that is SJP World Media. You can find that on Facebook and Twitter, at SJP World Media. And it'd be great if you could give it a like, a subscribe, a follow, click the little notification bell, and all that sort of great stuff uh, on every podcast platform you are on. Uh, so much different content on there from what's well, from myself there's different stuff uh, there's various other hosts as well lots of different shows wrestling tv music all sorts of stuff going on there and then each show also has its own separate feed so if you enjoy science fiction or time travel kind of programs and you enjoy the doctor who pod we've got another one on there that covers uh, quantum leap called the waiting room you can nip off and listen to the back catalog of those episodes those stories that particular type of show and not get interrupted by, say, for example, the wrestling programs, if you're not a particular wrestling fan, or vice versa. That's at SJP World Media there. And also, and most importantly, you can follow this show itself on Facebook and Twitter. That's at the Doctor Who pod. That's at the D-R-W-H-O-P-O-D, at the Doctor Who pod. Ah, okay, Colin Baker and a guest next week. Lovely, lovely stuff. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. Okie doke. Dan, it's been a blast, my friend. I'll let you get off, have your dinner, uh, you know, try and power through your migraines. I hope everything goes well and you're not poorly, my friend. Uh, it's just, uh, it's, it's been th- about three steps forward, one step back, so I'll be all okay. right, don't you worry. Good stuff. Awesome. And to everyone else, as always, thank you for listening. I spanked a gimp at a wrestling show once. <laughs> <laughs>